Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays This is the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Juliana LaRue, a freelance writer who publishes news, blogs, and articles about Franco-Americans and French culture. She has written about the culture in weekly or bi-weekly articles for the past 27 years. And she's also behind the Franco-American News and Culture blog, which I will actually post a link to on the French Canadian Legacy social media site. Uh, we're definitely excited to uh, talk to her today because she has recently written a couple of articles that have gotten a whole lot of attention uh, in the Franco-American or French-Canadian, depending what you want to call us, uh, <laughs> population. Uh, so thank you very much, Juliana, for joining us today. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to uh, to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. Now, kind of a little bit of background, because I thought this was kind of fascinating when I was looking up your biography. Obviously, you're based in Maine now, but where are you from originally? Because this was a surprising answer. I know. Uh, well, that is a surprise to most people, but... <laughs> I have been writing about the Franco-American culture now for about 30 years because nice. that bio should be updated. So, <laughs> okay, uh, good. Uh, thank you for checking on that for <laughs> no me. Problem. And also, um, I've, I've been married to my Franco-American husband who carries the pedigree now for 52 years. Well, congratulations. So, That's awesome. Uh, but we met in Maryland. I'm a native Marylander, and uh, I studied French in school. I didn't major in it, but I studied it. When I met this charming sailor who was uh, <laughs> on active duty at the time in Baltimore, uh, I was just so enchanted with the fact that I could date a real Frenchman. And so anyway, um, when we moved to Maine after he uh, retired from the Navy, Portland Press Herald was looking for a Franco-American columnist for their York County edition, and that's how I picked up the beat. And and it, and I never looked back. I mean, I I have done at least one article about Franco-Americans, sometimes two, every single solitary week without missing a deadline, without missing a second. That's why there's probably I guess thousands of those articles now. Uh, some of them were just in print and and were never put online, uh, but most of them now at some point in time you can find most of them online uh, on the website www.mainwriter.com uh, there's also a link uh, to many of the past columns including the most popular ones so i as a result of that i was uh, uh indoctrinated i was so honored to be included in the main franco-american hall of fame that's awesome and i'm now the vice president of the franco-american collection at the University of Southern Maine, which is a dedicated archives uh, specifically for the purpose of supporting and promoting the Franco-American culture and history. Uh, while I am not a native Franco-American, I am more Franco-American than I was a Marylander. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Now, you mentioned you, Thanks you, for asking. you put something out every single week, so I'm curious, where do you get an idea to come up with a new interesting topic week after week after week for years? Well, that's probably at the root of the subject we were going to talk about, which is, you know, what do you call yourself? Um, the Franco-American population 
probably, you know, suffered somewhat from from the stereotype somehow being, you know, an ethnic minority group and then sort of people just, you know, accept that. Sure. And boy, I found out early on, very early on, that that's just plain not the case. And the diversity within the Franco-American culture and the history of the different groups within the culture are absolutely fascinating. And every single Franco-American, of course, we know now there were tens of thousands of them. Sure. They all have an original story, and they love to tell their story, and that's really what I write about. I write about the Franco-American story, and that could be the story through the eyes of the Acadians who came from Grand Prix in Nova Scotia. That could be from through the eyes of a Creole. Uh, in Louisiana, who really came through the Caribbean. That's a Franco-American story, too. And uh, so there's absolutely no end to the uh, wonderful, wonderful stories that continue to come my way. And probably because I have written about the culture so much, I, I really can pick up on a lot of the nuances that I know the readers, by experience, will respond to. So over time, you know, I've sorted through in my own, you know, mind, this is something that the readers of this culture will want to know more about. And so that's, that's re- the reason. And there's, there's, abs- and I, I mean, people send me manuscripts, they send me original poetries, they, they've sent me DVDs, I have over 30 years of people that have sent me their own personal stories, handwritten stories. So believe me, there's plenty more to write about. That's tremendous. Now we, we alluded to the article a couple of different times. So I'd like to get into it a bit. Uh, the what to call ourselves an opinion. And that's something that we, like I said, a lot of people are talking about now. And my first question to you is, why is this such a tough question? Why, why are we struggling so bad to come up with a way to describe ourselves? Right. That's an excellent question. Denise, Denise Larson really wrote an essay about this in the uh, Le Forum, which is a quarterly magazine that the University of Maine puts out. And I picked up on her theme because I've heard it so often in the years I've been writing about it. And she's really frustrated because she, what she writes about it, you know, we're, we're just, we're just not one group. I mean, we just didn't show up here as Franco-Americans. We all have our own personal stories to tell. It is true. And I've looked because I knew this call was coming. <laughs> I have gone through some of my more academic books. Sure. Um, incredibly, uh, in the first chapter, in the first paragraph, in several books, that theme erupts right off the page. You know, the French Canadians takes the history through 1967. First page of that book says the very same thing. The why do Franco-Americans have such a difficult time identifying themselves? And why are Franco-Americans obsessed with sure. trying to find the identity that describes them and so to my in my experience and I'm not an anthropologist I'm not a sociologist actually I'm a professional registered nurse who is a writer (laughs) but uh in my experience writing about this subject I feel it's because this might be a little simplistic but I think it's because they've never had a chance to tell their story the Franco-American experience in America has been buried as though it never really happened and it was overshadowed by this idea of a great melting pot and of course it's true that you know just I I don't know how many millions of Europeans and Eastern Europeans came to Ellis Island and um, and other uh, ports of entry and created what we call today the great melting pot right and the Franco-Americans were frankly marginalized pretty much in Canada lived a very parochial life 
speaking French, practicing their religion, Roman Catholicism, very devoutly. And they frankly, you know, never uh, were very quiet. They called, uh, Dyke Hendrickson calls them, he's a writer, and he framed it as the quiet presence. They never really asked for a lot of attention. But then, you know, when they, when they, they, they really did uh, create quite a, a history of North America. They were the first settlers, Acadia, Nova Scotia, as far as setting up settlements go. Right. They go back to like 1604 and even earlier with fishermen and traders. So there was a precedence for the French in North America that preceded the English, and the first language spoken in North America, uh, north of uh, Florida, I think, the first language was French, not English. And so they they, they became quite parochial, and uh, I think they never really were able to get their story out. And that's my opinion, uh, but I hear their stories loud and clear now, and, and they want to find their common identity. In the Franco-American culture, or the history of the Franco-Americans in America, meaning Franco-Americans, right. Um, they they really diverse. They, they really are. They, you have the Acadians, which really have a totally separate history from the Quebecois who came down through the Industrial Revolution from Quebec. They, the Acadians were the first settlers in Nova Scotia, and um, the British became highly suspect of their allegiance because they were French, and so they rounded them up and... Uh, dispersed all of them as many as they could and they burnt all their properties so there would be no record that they had ever even been there um and so they were scattered to the wind and wound up in all kinds of strange places some of them were refugees and they wound up settling a small community up in Madawaska, which at the time in northern Maine was not a state. So they settled on both sides of the border, Madawaska in New Brunswick, Madawaska in Maine, which was eventually determined with um, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. But at the time, it was just a no-man's land, and they went there. But they went to so many other places. So that was the Acadian Odyssey. It was captured by um, Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in his poem Evangeline. Their history really is so different than the Quebecois. Which I think is an enormous point to this entire story. I don't think a lot. I don't think a lot of people know that that they there is two separate histories, two separate identities. Oh yeah, with the Acadians and then those who came down from Quebec. Right, and I learned that the hard way, by the way. Is, that a, because, is there a story uh, with this? When I first started writing the stories about Franco-Americans, I was a little too parochial myself, and I kept focusing on the Quebecois side. And I heard from people saying, wait a minute, you know, there's a whole other side to this. And so when I started to look into that, um, boy, it's, it's, it's very compelling. And, of course, there was a movie, Evangeline, um, with Dolores Del Rio. She was a glamorous movie star of the silence films it was quite a big hit so i mean this that that whole drama really was was incredibly sad and in some ways it's a it's not unlike the tragedies we're seeing today you know with people who are being expelled from their homes after they've lived there for a couple hundred years and then for no reason that they did anything wrong all of a sudden they wind up refugees and that's kind of what happened that's exactly what happened with the acadians and so the acadians settled in northern maine and they became prosperous farmers they really developed the land there they the potato farms so many of them were the franco the french uh farms they still carry the names of those farms and they had an agrarian culture but the quebecois in quebec they they settled there to build a new france 
and to grow families in much more of an urban setting, Quebec and Montreal. Uh, and then it turned out that they they just couldn't, it was not a sustainable model. They couldn't feed themselves. There was tremendous depression. They had too many children. There was a very short growing season. They didn't have enough time to grow the amounts of food they needed. And the Industrial Revolution hit in New England, and they were desperate for workers. And uh, they were actually recruiters that went up into Quebec and enticed these people to leave their homes and to come into cities like um, Manchester, for example, sure. um, Lewiston, Maine, Biddeford, and other cities, and uh, and to get jobs. And well, the first this was the first time in these families' histories where they ever earned real money. Everything they had before was based on what they could grow or they could trade. There was very little commerce with money and all of a sudden they had real money and so that really attracted them and brought their families in and they settled in these uh, parochial uh, communities sometimes they were called little canadas right and in those communities they established themselves in an insulated way where they really didn't want to frankly English. They really didn't want to mingle with the Protestants, who they considered English. All, all English were Protestants. So they really set themselves apart, and that didn't help them to get their story out. They never really, and so many of them were illiterate, frankly, that they couldn't write it down. So they, they don't, their, their identity sometimes is even lost. Some, some of their families today don't have any idea, even no idea how their original ancestors came into the United States, because no one wrote it down. They died before the story could be told. And so that's why genealogy right now is just incredibly important to many Franco-Americans, because it's been through church records, birth and death records, that they have meticulously gone back and tried to trace where their ancestors came from. And the Mormon church has been very helpful with that, because they, they retain those records as well. And they've They've even actually supported the Franco-American genealogy collections by buying uh, pieces of it and make it available, making it available digitally to the world. That they've been very supportive of that, and that's been helpful. So that's one of the stories. But you know, there's still the stories of uh, the French who settled in Louisiana. There's still the stories of the French who actually married into the uh, Native American culture. Sure. They're the Matisse of French, and. And they have a tremendous history, too. And they, they wound up as settlements out in western Canada. Some of their stories are incredibly tragic. So you have these different, you have the Creole, you have the Cajun, the Cajun culture of the Acadians who went to Louisiana. You have the Franco-Americans from Quebec. You have the Acadians who settled in Maine from Nova Scotia. So these different cultures all have their own stories, and they've never really talked about it before. You're only now seeing English literature's uh, histories really becoming more widely read, and, and if it wasn't for the internet, I don't know if they would be read at all, but, sure. but a lot of it now finally is winding up on the internet, and as a matter of fact, at the uh, University of Southern Maine's Franco Collection, where I'm the vice president of the board, that is our goal. We are working with the University of Southern Maine, who are supporting us putting all of our collection digitally in the commons where everyone can access it and that's really helped a lot so eventually people are tracing back their stories and they're they're coming to a common identity and i think that franco-american probably is the best one although i think the huguenots that's another layer by the way i forgot to mention <laughs> yeah, yeah that's where the protestants and sure. they were franco-americans paul revere was uh, was a descendant of the huguenots they were the protestants who were who were uh, really they they were massacred 
and they were thrown out of France, and many of those refugees wound up in New England. And they still have an American Huguenot society who is very uh, intent on protecting that culture as being not the same as the Franco-American culture. But in the end of the day, the Huguenots are now Franco-Americans, the Quebecois are Franco-Americans, the Acadians are Franco-Americans. They're just going to have to come to a common uh, consensus about that. So it's my opinion, and I think it will eventually come down to that. I really do, because they share the common French ancestry. They all originally came from France, every single one of them. That's the common thread. Sure, but it, it's interesting because in a different article, uh, you mentioned that it's that's not necessarily been a unanimous opinion. No, it yeah. is no, it is yeah. not uh, because they feel like maybe uh, just to come from France to the U.S. doesn't make you a Franco-American. It means you must have come through some Canadian connection. There sure. are many people that feel that way that it must be a Canadian connection in order to be a Franco-American. Otherwise, you're just a French-American. Which I guess isn't the same. No, absolutely, because you I mean what was it, Madeline Jiguer? Yeah, that? Madeline Jiguer. I mean, she almost had like a like a checklist you wrote about in that article, right, different things did. that that would make you a Franco-American, like the Roman Catholic faith. Yeah, she she had she studied. She was a sociologist. She she studied the culture through her own experience and also academically through I think it was several universities in New England. She she really felt strongly herself that the Franco-American is a family or a person who's uh, at some point in their ancestry, the family was Roman Catholic, that the family spoke French as their first language and continues to speak some French in the home. And that could be as little as saying, uh, I have a meme. Sure. But there is some French still spoken in the home. There was a history of being Roman Catholic and that uh, they have a connection to French Canada. But, you know, that would eliminate the Huguenots. Right. Uh, which then they do not have a connection directly to French Canada, um, but they were refugees and they were not Catholic. So you know they they would be. I would not agree with her sociological expert opinion. Sure. <laughs> necessarily, but she certainly uh, was devoted to that point of view. Now we've been so. u- we've been using the term uh, Franco American quite a bit. Are you comfortable with that term? Because I really feel as though it identifies where all of the culture originated, which was in France. And that's where I think the commonality is that can't be disputed. That's that's the single fact. French language has 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 been sustained through these populations. Now, the, you know, that there's been a lot of talk about, oh, well, it's not real French. Well, it is real French. That's ridiculous. There's no other language <laughs> but French. These immigrant groups have retained the language to the best of their ability. And now there's a big movement to get back to uh, to speaking more French and to learning uh, more more about the language. And uh, uh, people are taking much more pride in their uh, in learning French. So I think you're going, you know, the French language might be the one common thread now that will uh, sustain the entire Franco-American uh, experience. Some ability or retention of speaking French in the home or in conversation. And it doesn't have to be fluent French. It can be, you know, broken French, but sure. some semblance of the French language. It's funny because in that same article, you regularly refer to Franco-American and or French-Canadian. And to me, I thought that was interesting because seemingly a lot of people use those two terms interchangeably. Yeah, it, it seems it like you went out of your way not to. It is confusing um, because, you know, if you're a French-Canadian, you're still a French-Canadian. And sure. You're probably, you know, but the, the customs and the language and the and the um, 
traditions are exactly the same. They're mere, you know, they have the Acadian heritage. Uh, they, every four years, the Acadians have uh, a reunion. And they've been doing this every four years for the past, I guess, 12 or 15, 16 years. And I went, I was invited to the, the huge event they had up in Fort, um, up in Madawaska. And this was an international event in that they celebrated the Acadian culture on both sides of the border in uh, Fort Kent and in Madawaska. They had celebrations on the Canadian side and simultaneous con- awesome. celebrations on the American side. And the idea was, you know, that they send out a mass invitation around the world to bring together families, especially those families who were um, who were torn apart by the deportation that I spoke about. Right. And these people, I'm serious, it's thousands, wow. thousands. Wow, that's of, awesome. That's great. And when you when I went, there was there was no difference between the Canadian side and the American side. The language was the same. The celebrations <laughs> were the same. The family names were the same. That's the awesome. Same. Uh, when I went up there, uh, my husband, uh, his mother was a Marin. His grandmother was a Sassasan. And sure enough, the Morans and the Sanfasans were on both sides of the border, sure, and they're of all related. That and makes it was sense. a huge family reunion. So the French Canadians and the Franco Americans are are really the same culture. One of the things you brought up in that same article was whether or not we are the only ethnic group that has this problem finding a self-identified. I mean, do you think that's the case? Based on the research that I did preparing for this podcast, <laughs> uh, it would appear that that is the case. Uh, I have not found any evidence otherwise, and um, I continue to hear that from my readers, and I continue to read that in the literature, that this this identity, and I believe that it's the root cause is, is what I surmise uh, that Franco-Americans have not been able to tell their story. It's been buried in American history. Um, obviously, they lost the war for control of England, and the English really uh, persecuted them and discriminated against the French. And so there was very little opportunity with the uh, population that had very little limited literacy skills uh, outside of their clergy to really tell their story. Now, you know, they're co- becoming aware and trying to find their own roots. There, there was a wonderful uh, book that was published by a, a gentleman out of Lowell, Massachusetts in the turn of the century, and the name of it is called Immigrant Odyssey. And this gentleman was really a peasant. He, he was a Franco-American immigrant into Lowell, and he couldn't read or write at all. He had a sense that his story had to be told, sure. and he went to a scribe. And they can't even attribute who the scribe was, but they assume it was a clergyman. And this this scribe took an interest in this gentleman and wrote down every single word that this man told him verbatim. The University of Maine got a hold of that manuscript about 20 years ago and published it in a beautiful, beautiful book that's actually two books in one. One book is the exact transcription as the scribe took the story from the immigrant gentleman and the other half of the book is a is a literal translation into english and to wow, what that's awesome. gentleman said. it's a classic and it shows to me the devotion that one person had in the turn of the century that when he died his story was going to die and he knew that and he had to tell it and i think that's what that's what the root of the problem is, is that the, the Franco-Americans have not been able to tell their stories. 
I think some of that is because it doesn't fit neatly into some of the way we learn about immigration stories in school, like in high school. I mean, you hear about the original settlers and we hear about Ellis Island. And if you don't, if your ethnic group doesn't fit into one of those categories, seemingly sometimes you get forgotten. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happened. Yeah. But it's interesting you should bring up Ellis Island because actually my blog this week, I'm actually going to focus on that. Immigration is such an issue now in the news. We can't forget about our own immigration history, so all of us. And anyway, when I was uh, visiting Ellis Island, I didn't expect to ever see anything about French-Canadian immigration. I was thinking, oh, Italians and Polish. And there was a button on the immigration map and it said press a button for any ethnic group or any country and see where the settlers, where the where the immigrants came into the U.S. So sure enough, they had a French-Canadian light. You press on this button and a light comes up. And all of a sudden, you know, the map lit up. <laughs> I mean, it was New England, but it was also California. It was also Louisiana. Sure. It was also Michigan. And I was just astounded by the number of lights that came up on that map when I pressed uh, Franco. But you don't hear their stories. It was, it, but it was good that it was on that map, you know. And the and the Franco Americans in Michigan, they have a different uh, story as well. In Michigan, a lot of they have a wonderful Franco American Historical Society in Michigan. I don't know. In your podcast, you might want to connect with them. I'll they connect with wonderful. anybody. Yeah, they, I think you would like to hear their story. Their story is very, and they're trying to pull their culture together because they lost. They have lost their history. And this uh, Franco American Society in Michigan is doing excellent work. You know, so there's all there's all kinds of stories to tell, and there's no end to it, really, frankly. See how long I can talk about it? <laughs> no, I love this. This is awesome. <laughs> I did want to get your thoughts on a quote that from one of your articles from Mason Wade, where he said, Nowhere in North America is the cult of the past stronger than in French Canada. French Canadians live in and on their past to a degree which is difficult for the English-speaking North Americans to appreciate. Is that yeah. something you agree with? Based on my experience, I would argue with Mason Wade. He's the gentleman. In fact, I'm looking at his book right now. Awesome. Um, it's called The French Canadians uh, by Mason Wade. He takes the history from 1760 to 1967. So it was an issue uh, there as well. And, of course, there's you know, a lot of negativity to this whole uh, concept. It isn't all academic. There is some sense of uh, ownership in the precedence idea that the French were here first and therefore... They should be given deference because of that. And that has caused a lot of division uh, within the bigger society. That, that, is, that, ha- that is the uh, concept behind the, really behind the separatist movement in Quebec. Right. That was uh, a precedence for the French. And so, um, so this is in the preface of the book you just, get, uh, you just uh, cited. This is on the first sentence of the book. It says, this book is essentially an attempt to explain why the French Canadians live think, act, and react differently <laughs> from English-speaking North Americans. That's first awesome. sentence, first page. So, it's true, you know, the, the event. But, but I, 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 I have a lot of confidence that because of work like on the Internet and people are researching their, their origins, uh, the genealogy work, the history, the resurgence of speaking French again. People are interested in it. Believe me, there's a big interest in learning to speak French, and not necessarily, you know, big flowy French, just learning a lot more French. Uh, I think that, that, that we are going to see um, more consensus in the culture about, you know, what to call ourselves. I do. 
Well, that's awesome. And Giuliana, you've been absolutely great. But I did want to get one more thought from you. And that is this, the fact that we're even having this discussion, that we're searching for a word to describe us. What impact do you think that has on our culture now and our and our struggle to hold on to that identity, to struggle to hold on to that heritage, the, the ability to connect back with Quebec or with Acadia, the fact that we that we don't have a, an identifiable word that we all agree on? Well, we are going to come to an agreement. Um, I think we're moving in that direction. This conversation sort of affirms that in my mind. But none of us can lose sight of where we came from. You know, we can't lose sight of that because it's what makes us human. I mean, we all have a human condition that's unique to us, and it's part of the of the whole civilization that we live in. Each of us, I would suspect, has a similar story in our family that's parallel to something that's going on today sure. in the world. Absolutely. And we should be able to relate to our own history and have compassion on those who are now going through the very same thing. So it's interesting. I I, I don't want to keep you longer than your podcast. (laughs) No, this is awesome. I'm a real fan of Willa Cather. And lo and behold, they said in 2019, this year, her essay titled Nebraska was uh, lifted from copyright protection. And I had a librarian friend get that article for me because it was published in 1923. And I got the original, and I transcribed it because I was so impressed with it. And the reason I was enchanted with the article is because in 1923, Willa Cather described the Americanization of Nebraska that was exactly parallel to the Americanization of the Franco-Americans in New England. It It was immigrants. It was immigrants, and she describes them. And it's a beautiful article, and um, I actually put a link to it on, on one of my other blogs, and um, I'm going to be quoting from it in the blog I'll publish tomorrow. But in any case, the fact is is that we can't lose sight of that because every generation, every population is sharing an experience that someone else in the world is also having. We have to have compassion. That's my opinion. We have to have compassion because our families went through the same thing. Absolutely right. You've been an awesome guest. Thank you very much. So before we go, once again, how can anybody get to your blog? Where should they go to make sure they can catch up on everything you write? Well, on the on the Bangor Daily News blog site, that's free. You don't have to subscribe. You can go to the blogging section, and I'm Franco-American News and Culture. In fact, it's an excellent blogging site. There's some excellent writers on that page, and um, I think uh, all readers will find something of interest on the bloggers page. But I am one of the regular bloggers there. And then my website is www.mainwriter, one word, mainwriter.com. And at that site, I post quite a few of my essays and articles. I also write articles for the Goose River Press publication out of um, uh, Maine, which is a wonderful anthology that comes out every year, um, published by Deb Benner. And uh, usually every year I have a Franco-American essay published in that as well. Okay, we'll make sure to link from our (laughs) social media pages both of those links that you just mentioned. We'll spread them as much as possible. In return, I'm probably going to ask you to do this again sometime if that's okay. Because this, this has been awesome. Good luck with your podcast. I appreciate you very much. Thank you very much. Au revoir. Au revoir. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive 
Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV Podcasting Studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.